Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Back in Style, the Twisted Mug Media Network's Twin Peaks podcast. I'm Logan, and in a very rare occurrence, I am alone on this episode. Now, if you listen to the show, you know that normally I'm joined here by Matt and sometimes Ryan, uh, but this is an episode that they actually couldn't be on because they have not yet seen Twin Peaks The Return. Uh, Now, if you haven't seen season three of the best show of all time, don't switch the podcast over just yet because the first part of this review will actually be completely spoiler-free, and I invite you to stick around for that. Uh, Strongly encourage it. First, though... I want to give uh, some quick plugs for the other shows on our feed. We normally do this at the end, but because some people might be jumping out during the middle uh, because of spoilers, I wanted to just put this stuff out there right at the beginning. First up, we have our flagship show on the channel, the Cinema Talk Podcast, our long-form movie review podcast. We've just finished talking about the Alien series, and we're moving on to some other really cool movies. Next is the CTP Movie Journal, Matt and Ryan's miscellaneous short-form movie podcast featuring the best-of lists. Very soon, they'll be coming out with a top 25 of the decade, uh, spanning from 2010 to 2019. They're really excited for that. I'm really excited for that. Check that out on the channel once it comes out. The other shows are Stop, Wait, What? Our improv comedy advice show, Twisted Mug Mysteries, your one-stop shop for everything spooky and occult, Octo Island, our extended universe Star Wars podcast series, and I Might Play That, our video game review podcast. Uh, And we really encourage you to uh, reach out to us on social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter, uh, at Twisted Mug Media, and you could also email us if you want to, twistedmugmedia at gmail.com. You know, email or DM us uh, if you have any questions, you know, suggestions of movies or video games to talk about, uh, Twin Peaks theories of your own, or if you just want to let us know that you like our shows. Um, We would love to hear from you in any way. Give us a follow, give us some likes on some of our stuff. Uh, A little goes a long way. So, how this podcast is going to work. Basically, I'll go into my background with the show, uh, my most recent experience with Twin Peaks, which is why I am recording this whole thing, uh, and then we're going to get into the spoilers. So first, I'll start with my background uh, with the show. I started watching this when I heard that there was going to be a revival. Um, actually, my brother, uh, my older brother Ethan, got me into it, uh, who you've heard on the show on some like late season one episode, I think. Um, so he is to thank for uh, you know all of these back in style episodes. Um, he got me into it and. Uh, It really wanted to get me up to speed uh, so that I could watch the revival. Uh, So I watched the first two seasons, then I watched the movie Firewalk With Me, uh, and then I watched The Return. Uh, So by the time I wanted to go back uh, and rewatch it, I watched season one and two. Uh, But then by the time I was about to get to Firewalk With Me and The Return, Back in Style started. Um, It was a really cool idea that I was really excited to get started on with Matt. Uh, It was just Matt and I at the beginning. Um... But basically how how the show works, if this is your first episode, um, first of all, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Uh, but normally the way this show works is, as someone who's seen the show before, um, I sort of take Matt through every episode, and he has not seen the show before. Uh, and so every episode, when we talk about it, we're talking about my, you know, third or fourth time watching it, and his first time. Uh, which is a really interesting and cool way to, uh, to sort of go through this series. Um, so I had the idea, I got Matt on board, um, and we started going through it episodically from the beginning, and I thought, well, you know, I'll get to Firewalk with me in the return when I get there, um, and that'll be later, but, so I had not watched the return since it was on TV, and I was watching it week after week, um, a very different experience this time, uh, which was 
to watch Twin Peaks The Return in all of its 18-hour glory in essentially one sitting. Um, now, of course, I had to go to the bathroom and things like that. Uh, but uh, other than bathroom breaks and getting the meals I ate while watching the show, uh, I sat in my basement for 18 consecutive hours and paid full attention to Twin Peaks The Return. Um, I got the idea because I kept hearing people talk about the season as an 18-hour movie, um, essentially just meaning that, you know, Lynch and, and the whole production team and the entire cast had, you know, they'd, they'd written everything, shot everything, all of that, before it even aired on TV. They had this whole movie. Um, I, I say movie. Uh, they had this whole season all written out and shot and produced and everything before they even released the first episode, which is which is unusual for most shows. Um, and, you know, I heard people talking about it as an 18-hour movie, and I thought, you know, why not actually watch it in one sitting to think about it in a different way? Um, so then I got to finding a day where I could just erase my schedule and totally focus on watching this 18-hour movie. Uh, it was harder than you'd think, so it took me a couple weeks to, you know, figure out a good day and actually commit to it, but once I did, it was well worth it. Um, and if you're going to do it, now is the time to do it. We have the whole coronavirus pandemic going on. Uh, you know, hopefully you're staying inside as much as possible, maybe working from home. Uh, so, you know, if you have a day, I would really suggest doing this. Um, other than a cool bucket list type thing to do, it was a really immersive experience that helped me understand the show in a much deeper way than I did the first time. While watching it this way, you notice these tiny details uh, planted in scenes early on that foreshadow later happenings, and you also notice important thematic elements that get lost if you watch each episode a week after the last. And more importantly, in my opinion, you get a much clearer sense of the feeling that it's all meant to evoke. And I've always felt that feeling and atmosphere are a lot more important than plot points and Easter eggs in David Lynch's work. Although, don't get me wrong, I do love those plot points and Easter eggs. Um, but everything, you know, the, the plot points and the Easter eggs and the performances and the special effects and the music, Battle of Menti's amazing music, um, and the soundtrack that Lynch selects, everything comes together to create this expertly crafted atmosphere that sticks with you more than the specifics. Uh, you know, after you watch a Lynch movie, you remember details, and there, there are details and, and images uh, that you remember, but I think more than that, you remember how it made you feel, and it's a very specific feeling that I think David Lynch has gotten really good at pinpointing, um, and I, I really felt that uh, through this 18-hour viewing experience. So now for my official recommendation and endorsement of watching Twin Peaks The Return as uh, a single 18-hour unit. Knowing what this experience did to my perception of the season, I would absolutely, without question, recommend this experience to anyone who has seen The Return and has seen the original run and Firewalk with me fairly recently. I think I, 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 think I did it the right way. I feel pretty confident about that. Um... Uh, I, I had seen The Return before, this was a revisiting and sort of a reinterpretation, and I had seen seasons one and two recently. What I really wish I had done is watch Firewalk with me. There were details in Firewalk with me um, that as I was watching through The Return this time, I was thinking, 
uh, would be nice if I had seen Firewalk with me recently. Uh, uh, and, you know, most of the time I could remember, ooh, this was a detail in Firewalk with me. And I remembered that the detail was there, but I didn't remember what it was. So that was a little bit of an issue. Um, and, yeah, so... I think this is a fun and interesting way to watch it, but I don't think it should be your first viewing experience. Um, I think you should spend time, if you haven't seen season three before, I would recommend spending time taking in each episode because you only get to watch it for the first time once. And I think that is a really special experience. Um, uh, binging is great, but I think, uh, you know, as a culture with... You know, streaming platforms being the main way that people watch TV now, uh, I would say. It's, I, I think we've stopped appreciating, uh, we've stopped appreciating TV in, in some ways. Uh, and we don't really savor things as much anymore. We just sort of blow through it and, you know, oh yeah, I watched a season of that in a day. Um, and I, I, so I think stretching it out uh, has its benefits. But as I said, watching it as one unit also really has its benefits. Um, so again... Uh, if you've seen The Return before, and you've seen the original run, and Firewalk with me, uh, and you have those sort of fresh in your mind, I would absolutely recommend this. It's it's a really cool way to watch this. Uh, and so, <laughs> full disclosure, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to tell the story on the episode or not, but I, I think I will. Uh, I, I really wanted to record this episode right after finishing, um, right after finishing the 18th hour. Uh, and I started... And I looked over at, I have this Xfinity uh, X1 entertainment system. This is not an ad, although I would be happy for Xfinity to sponsor us, I guess. Um, I looked over because it displays the time, and I saw an error message. And there's something really freaky when you've just finished watching uh, 18 hours of David Lynch-fueled madness to look over where you're expecting to see a time with numbers and you see letters with an error message. Uh, especially if it's not very clear, I forget even what the message was. It was like, it was like S L S T or something like that. And I was like, what does that mean? I got freaked out. Uh, I went to bed and now I'm back here doing this. Um, but so I'll, I'll go into what this podcast will not and will be. What it will not be is an episodic review of what I like and dislike about each episode of the show or the show in general. Um, for that, I would invite you to come back to the channel every other Friday as I work through the show with my newcomers, Ryan and Matt. Uh, I'm really excited to get to the return with them, and I have a lot of great things to say about this show. I also have some negative things to say about this show. There are some things that I think uh, the return does to the Twin Peaks canon that uh, it, it cheapens it in some ways, in my opinion, and, um, it, you know, it just, just otherwise changes the show into something a little bit different than it was, uh, in, in my opinion, when it was at its best. Um, and not to say that it isn't at its best now, but, uh, it's just, it, it fundamentally changes the world of Twin Peaks. And so there are ways in which I, d I don't like what this does. Um, but there are also a lot of things that I do like, and I'm really excited to talk about that on the channel. So if you subscribe, uh, to us on, you know, I, I, I know our host site is Podbean. You can find all of our stuff at stopwaitwhat.podbean.com. Um, that is our host site just for full transparency. Uh, but we're also on iTunes. You can, I think you can subscribe there. I don't use iTunes. I use Spotify. Um, so, you know, just give us good ratings everywhere and, and 
reach out to us on social media. And if you do that, uh, you will never miss an episode. Um, and so that's what the podcast will not be because that is all going to come later. What this will be essentially is uh, a reading of my notes that I took during the viewing. It was really tough for me not to just start writing all of the moments and themes that I love, like just, just a catalog of every single thing that is done in the return that I am absolutely enamored with. Um, but I, I chose to be more selective about only taking notes that are more specific to this watch through. Um, I, as I said, I did take notes, not as many as I normally would for an episode of back in style or, um, you know, for a movie on the cinema talk podcast, uh, uh, and, and most of them, most of those notes fell into five main categories. The first category is uh, the largest one. Uh, there are things that I noticed as a result of the 18 hour experience or just as a result of the second viewing. Some of these things were the same. Uh, so this category is pretty much just, you know, things that you might not have noticed the first time. Uh, maybe you did, but I certainly didn't. So these were new things to me this time around, whether it was a result of the 18 hour experience or just because I was looking at it for the second time. Uh, the second category was things that I noticed as a result of the in-depth analysis that we've been doing on Back in Style. Uh, details that I noticed from seasons one and two, uh, and even some Firewalk with me, even, even though, as I said, it's not super fresh in my mind. Um, third category is overarching themes that you notice when you watch it all the way through. Uh, the fourth category is uh, things that are actually worse about this, uh, about watching it as an 18-hour experience. And there aren't many. Uh, there are two. I'll, I'll spoil that. There are two things that are worse when you watch it as an 18-hour movie rather than a season. Um, but I'll get into that. And then five, the last thing I'll be talking about is uh, the things that I still have questions about. Um, there are a lot of things still, uh, even after this next time, the second time watching it through that I still don't really get. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll figure them out eventually. Maybe I won't. You know, Lynch loves leaving kind of mysteries open-ended, and and that's part of the charm, I think, of his work. Um, but, so, I'll, I'll be talking about all that. Uh, if, if you haven't seen The Return, I implore you, please watch The Return. It is a masterpiece. I, I really feel that in the future, whenever someone asks me what my favorite movie is, I'm going to say would you consider all 18 hours of Twin Peaks The Return to be a single movie? Uh, and if they say yes, that's my number one right there. If they say no, I would have to think about it a little more. But this is absolutely uh, my favorite, you know, whether it's a season of a TV show or uh, or you do count as a movie, this is my favorite of whatever category you put it in. Um, so I would really recommend uh, watching that. Uh, the spoilers uh, are starting very soon. Um so just, just to give you a, a, a fair warning, uh, the spoilers are coming up. I beg you, please don't listen to the spoiler section of this if you have not uh, watched The Return. But if you have, the spoilers start now. Uh, I'm really excited to get into all of this. As I mentioned, there are basically five categories. Things I noticed this time around, uh, more tiny details. Things I noticed as a result of uh, you know our, our analysis on Back in Style. The overarching themes that you notice when you watch it all the way through, things that are actually worse about this experience, and things I still have questions about. I'm going to start with that fourth category, just because, as I already mentioned, it is so small, um, and there are only two things, and they're both kind of running gags in the season. Um, so they they lose their cleverness. 
basically is, is the idea when, when it's all matched together. One of these things is Diane uh, saying, uh, her, her catchphrase is kind of, fuck you, Albert, or fuck you, Gordon, uh, or even Tammy sometimes gets, gets thrown in there uh, and insulted in that way. And, you know, watching this show week after week, it's, it's really funny. It's really funny when this keeps coming back. And, you know, when you watch one fuck you, Albert joke, and then a week later you watch another fuck you, Albert joke, it's funny. It's a, it's a nice callback to what you already saw, uh, a, a week before, but when you're watching it as one movie, uh, and you, you hear that joke an hour after you last heard it, it totally loses its effect. It becomes really annoying. The same exact thing, um, is true of the second issue that I had, which is Lucy does this bit, uh, which is, you know, it's classic Twin Peaks, don't get me wrong. I love that she does this, but she does this bit where whenever she, um, whenever she, uh, uh, sends in a call to Frank Truman's office, um, she has a whole thing about the blinking buttons, uh, pick the button, it's blinking, it's on line one, you know, whatever, and it, it's classic Twin Peaks. I mean, you know, from the pilot, we had her whole bit about, you know, the brown phone, not the black phone, over on the table that we got last week. And it's funny to see this kind of thing come back. Uh, but when it's the same thing every time, and when it's so close together, it loses its comedic effect. Um, and, you know, it's it's the same kind of thing with the fuck you, Albert. It just, it's... Uh, uh, it's funny when you're seeing it a week after the last time, but we're seeing when you're seeing it an hour after the last time, it loses its effect. Okay, now I have the bad stuff out of the way. Um, I'm going to start uh, with talking... Actually, I, I just kind of want to give a vague overview of the plot, uh, the things that happen. Um, obviously, there are a ton of side plots, and I'm not going to give any detailed plot summary or anything, uh, but there are, I think, a lot of things in this season that I have accepted to be sort of the plot, but are not readily apparent the first way through. So just to catch you up on kind of where I where I am with building my headcanon and building uh, the events of things that happen. So the season begins with the good Cooper in the Black Lodge. Uh, evil Cooper is outside, and there's this, there's this third guy that uh, Cooper's doppelganger who I think from now on, I've heard him called a lot of names, uh, uh, Dirty Coop, uh, Evil Coop. I'm going to say Mr. C, mostly, um, during this during this podcast. So if you hear me talking about Mr. C, I mean Cooper's evil doppelganger. Mr. C manufactured uh, this, I think, they, I think he's a tulpa, from my understanding, that's what a tulpa is, uh, Dougie Jones, who... Uh, you know, living out this life as this businessman with his wife and his kid who were also maybe manufactured. And anyway, the idea uh, of manufacturing him was that someday Mr. C had a time that he was supposed to return to the Black Lodge, that he had to go back in uh, and the the good Cooper would come back out. Uh, and Mr. C didn't want to go back into the Lodge. So he manufactured Dougie Jones so that uh, uh, when one... You know, there was kind of a quota, I guess, for one Cooper to go back in the lodge. Uh, it was Dougie Jones who was the manufactured one, and Mr. C got to stay out and uh, and wreak havoc. Uh, essentially, uh, the the good Cooper takes the place in takes Dougie Jones's place in Dougie Jones's own life. Um, you know, lives for a little while in a very catatonic state. Uh, then he's brought back while Mr. C is off doing a bunch of really bad stuff. In part eight 
of the return. Uh, I, I think this is a, a good place to talk about this. Uh, my understanding of that is that there was this evil kind of mother entity uh, called Jowde or Judy. I'm probably mostly going to say Judy during this podcast. Um, and, and Judy is floating in space and decides to vomit out a ball that contains the entity of Bob, who, as we know, is, you know, the, he, he possessed Leland Palmer. He killed Laura using Leland's body. Uh, we, we know all that already. And my, my interpretation, and I think the general consensus among fans, is that this is the birth of Bob. Um, it happens during the, the first ever nuclear test um, of, of the atomic bomb on the, the white sand desert in New Mexico. Um, and I, I guess I, I really like that actually, because it's, it's, it gives more meaning to Bob is the evil that men do. This was the first, like, I guess the first extreme act of evil on, on a large scale. Maybe that's what Lynch is trying to say. I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I said that I wasn't going to get into just talking about things that I like about the show. That's what that was, but sorry. Um, Judy vomits out Bob. Uh, she she sort of births Bob, uh, and then the giant who we've seen before in season two in Firewalk with Me, who now just goes by the Fireman, um, and his friend uh, I think named Senorita Dido is is the name. I don't know why. Uh, they manufacture Laura and they send her to Earth. She's supposed to be this this entity of pure good, pure light uh, that they send ostensibly to combat Bob, who's just been born. Towards the end of the season, um, Cooper, or, uh, uh, sorry, not Cooper, Gordon Cole describes a plan that he, Major Briggs, and Agent Cooper had put together to find the entity called Judy and maybe kill her or maybe just find her. I think he only says find, but they have this plan to get to Judy and essentially how Cooper does that is he goes back in time, um, to save Laura Palmer from, uh, from dying and instead, I think, creates an alternate timeline where Laura just disappears instead of getting killed. Um, Leland Palmer, I think in this world, takes his own life uh, rather than kind of dying at, at the hands of Bob in that amazing, you know, season two scene. Then in part 18, Cooper goes to, uh, he travels with Diane to maybe an alternate timeline uh, they wind up in Odessa under the names of Richard and Linda. Cooper seems to have still remembered what was going on, and Diane seems like she's just... Oh, by the way, Diane is, like, a physical manifestation of the Black Lodge or something? Because she has, she has like, red hair and then the black and white nails, so I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't get it. But um, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, you know, what I know. Um, uh, uh, and, and Cooper and Diane travel over to this other timeline, which is what I think it is. Uh, they they spend a night in a motel, and then uh, Diane, the next morning, believes that she is uh, Linda. She leaves Richard, who is really Cooper. Um, Cooper seems like he still knows what's going on. Uh, he goes to the house of a woman named Carrie Page, um, who uh, is played by Cheryl Lee, who played Laura Palmer, of course. Um, and they go, they travel to Twin Peaks, Washington, um, and they go to Laura's old house, and it's now occupied by the Tremonts, and the, uh, the, yeah, the Tremonts are currently there, the people who owned it before are the Chalfonts, we know those are the two names that, um, you know, the, the, the names of the two women who lived in the house that Donna delivered the Meals on Wheels thing to, I don't know, I don't get that, but that's what happened, Cooper asks Laura what year it is, and then Laura screams, so, 
that's kind of a baseline level of, you know, the, the overview, just so you're up to speed with what I know. So I think the next category I want to talk about is the biggest category. I think we're just going to dive right in. I'll just go down the list, uh, talk about things that I've only noticed because I either watched it as an 18-hour experience or because uh, I, I was viewing it for the second time. So in this very first scene, uh, we have the giant talking about Richard and Linda, 430, two birds with one stone, uh, and and then he says something else. But, I mean, that stuff all kind of comes back later. Um, they have to drive 430 miles to become Richard and Linda uh, in the town of Odessa, Texas, in what seems to be an alternate timeline. Um, then the giant says the phrase, it is in our house now. Uh, and this was very confusing to me. I guess he means Judy, uh, kind of the evil entity. Um, uh, yeah, so this is all very interesting to me because the first time watching it through, I had no idea what it was about, and I was just like, oh, this is like the regular nonsense. But, you know, I, I felt like that before. And I'll tell you when. While I was watching the very first dream sequence that we get uh, in, in early season one, you, you know, all these phrases, that gum you like is going to come back in style, where this podcast gets its name from. Or, uh, I feel like I know her, but sometimes my arms bend back. All of this just seems like complete nonsense. But later it all starts to make sense. And that's what I appreciated about this time through. I, I, I heard these very cryptic phrases during this opening scene. And then... I actually figured out what it meant later, or sort of what it meant later. I still don't fully get two birds with one stone. I think the idea is that they're killing Judy and saving Laura. That seem, That's my understanding. Who knows? That might not be right. The second thing I wanted to talk about is uh, uh, the woodsman. We see a woodsman in episode two, I think episode two, uh, one or two, when uh, the, the principal Bill Hastings is in the jail. We see the woodsman there, and he sort of floats up and disappears, uh, almost like smoke, uh, if, if that, you know, means anything here. Um, and we see a second woodsman uh, in the Buckhorn, maybe, police station or morgue in episode 7. Uh, he's just sort of wandering the halls. Um, and, you know, these are weird things that you notice the first time around, but you don't know that they're going to be important. I only knew that they were going to be important because I had already seen part 8. So that's what's really interesting about that to me. Next, I want to talk about the connection between the so-called Mauve Room um, and uh, the the Fireman's Palace uh, and and where uh, Senorita Dito lives. Um, I, I talked about them already a little bit, um, but there's this there's this purple sea, this like vast purple ocean, um, and they're they're in this this huge castle that's atop is a big. Like, this huge mountain that's coming out of the sea. Um, and also, Nido, who is uh, the, the woman with scratches over her eyes and seems to be blind. Um, and the actress who plays Ronette Pulaski in the original run. I will never understand this. Uh, Ronette Pulaski uh, is... I'm, I'm just going to call her Ronette. I think she's credited as, like, American Girl or something like that. But uh, the character who plays Ronette is in this, too. Um but when we see uh, uh, when we see that the the mauve room or so it's called uh, and the fireman's palace, they're all you know atop the same the same purple sea, which I think is really interesting. Also, a connection between those. There's the same kind of bell shape 
uh, in all of them. And this is also, of course, the bell that we see Philip Jeffries maybe trapped inside of um, towards the end of the series. But I think it's really interesting that, that bell is used anywhere, uh, everywhere, uh, rather. I don't know if that's because uh, the bell means something in terms of imagery or symbolism, or if it's just like a common mechanism used by all of these like kind of different lodge spirits. Uh, and maybe Jeffries is the lodge spirit now? Who knows? Uh, that's interesting to think about. But... Uh, the next thing is something that Ronette actually says uh, to Cooper, the good Cooper, when he's in the Mauve room. She says, 2.53, time and time again. Stuff happens with the lights and electricity uh, when it's 2.53 on Ronette's watch. And then we see uh, Mr. C driving uh, on, on a road we've already seen him driving before. It, that's a confusing part, but uh, that happens at 2.53. A lot of things happen at 2.53 um, in, I think, part 17. Uh, the the penultimate hour of this, the time on the clocks on the wall of the sheriff station sort of freezes and it goes it goes back and it goes forward a little bit, but it's at two fifty three. Really interesting. So actually, while we're on the topic of numbers, and I've just said two five three and I said four three zero earlier, I wanted to mention something that happened while I was watching through Twin Peaks this time, and it it really kind of irks me. Um, but when all these important numbers were coming up, I started kind of writing them down. Um, I wanted to figure out basically what's the most important number in Twin Peaks, uh, and you know what, what's an, maybe an important digit, or I, I feel like, I feel like there should be like some kind of solution to this. And so I just started kind of, just off the top of my head, started writing down a bunch of numbers. I remembered 430, I remembered 253. I remembered uh, the woman, the the drugged out mother, or so she's called, um, in in her home screaming one one nine. We have three fifteen. That's Cooper's room number at the Great Northern. Um, and we have the uh, the number six is I think seen on uh, a telephone pole, um, as well as oh god, the number six is definitely seen somewhere else. Uh, but I, I can't remember where it is now. Uh, but just take my word for it. The, the number six is important too. So we have, uh, uh, of the digits there now represented in these numbers, just the ones that I could come up with off the top of my head, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, and nine, and zero. So the only ones not represented are seven and eight. Um, and just for fun, I decided to Google the Palmer house. Let's do a Google image search. And the number of the house, wouldn't you know it, is 708. And this really pissed me off when I was watching because you know what this tells me is there is no, there's no number in Twin Peaks that's more important than the rest. There's nothing that's like gonna unlock it. Um, all these numbers, you know, they mean different things and they have different functions. But like, there's nothing that like once you figure out, oh, this is the most important number, um, that it's gonna magically solve everything for you. So. You know, every I have every digit represented in this like short list of numbers just that I just from, you know, coming up with them off the top of my head and from you know looking up one of them, and so I, I really think that you can't put too much significance in, into the numbers in Twin Peaks. But I just wanted to take that sidebar because I think that was interesting. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, Ronette says when you get there. You will already be there. This is in the same scene when they're in the move room. Uh, when I was watching this the first time, this didn't really mean anything. Seemed really generic. Uh, Rewatching it, however, uh, when when Cooper gets there, meaning the real world, 
he will already be there, uh, meaning Mr. C is already in the real world um, because he manufactured Dougie. Um, then let's talk about Dougie. When he goes into the casino, uh, with, and he's with Jade, Jade says, someone will help you in there. Uh, and, of course, what she means is someone will help you, you know, find your wallet, find your keys, find whatever. Uh, which so- and, and someone does help him in there, uh, but not quite like that. Someone helps him. Some I guess the incarnation of the Lodge helps him uh, decide which slot machines are going to be jackpots, earning him the name Mr. Jackpots in, in that really funny scene. Um, it, just little things like that. Just Just like... It's the tiniest bit of foreshadowing, but you never know it if you didn't watch it more than once. Um, uh, it, it, just a small thing, in part in part three, we see that Gordon Cole has a photo of the atomic bomb explosion behind behind his desk. We know that's important from part eight. Um, Richard Horn. I want to talk about Richard Horn. He is introduced uh, in a roadhouse end scene when we don't know that he's going to be important. Um because almost everyone that appears in these end scenes at the Roadhouse isn't really important. Um, they add to the atmosphere, like I was talking about before, the atmosphere, the feeling behind it all. Um, and they contribute to some of the themes uh, in this season of Twin Peaks. But uh, we see Richard Horn in a scene with uh, actually Jane Levy, who is, uh, uh, she's been in a, a few different TV shows. Um, uh, but she's a, a, a weirdly famous actress, I feel like, to just have a, a bit part in a Roadhouse end scene. Um, but yeah, Richard Horn is introduced, and then we actually see him do a lot more in the next episode. And uh, by the way, I'm so excited to talk about this character and the things that he does, the absolutely horrible things that he does. Um, he's one of the most interesting characters to me in The Return. I, I'm really drawn to him, not like in a good way at all, and in the worst way possible, like in the same way that I'm drawn to the character of Leland, because, uh, oh god, they're just so interesting, so interesting, can't wait to talk about that on the regularly scheduled episodes of Back in Style. Uh, but anyway, just going down the list, uh, only a few more things. Um, Diane has a scene where she goes in to talk to Mr. C, and... Knowing uh, that, you know, later in the series, we find out that Mr. C actually raped Diane at, at one point, where she, I guess, assumed that he was still the good Cooper, and he was not. And Mr. C also, it's implied that he raped Audrey while she was in a coma, which is just so fucked up that it's it's unbelievable, and he's apparently Richard, Horn, Richard Horn's uh, biological father. But anyway, that knowledge prior, or um, that knowledge that we get really close to the end of the series makes the scene early on where they talk so much more interesting. Um, it's just the, the tension and the darkness in that conversation is so amplified. Um, and you don't really get a sense of that watching it the first time around, but then the second time it, that conversation means a lot more. Okay. Next thing in part seven, uh, someone yell, someone comes into the double R diner and says, anyone seen Billy? And we know from some later scenes that uh, Audrey is cheating on Charlie with Billy, and we'll talk about the Audrey stuff later. Um, yeah, we'll talk about it. That's all I need to say about that for now. Uh, but that's just a, a tiny little line that foreshadows other stuff. Then the last thing I have written down uh, for one of these observations, this type of observation, is that when Gordon has a vision, I believe it's the Monica Bellucci dream, uh, he sees Woodsman standing on the stairs. And there's also a staircase shown towards the end. Um, so I kind of wonder if that's the same staircase. I think it might be. Um, that image towards the end of the staircase 
always really sticks with me. I think it might be in part 17. Um, because while Cooper is maybe walking up the stairs, uh, I, I, if memory serves, he's being led by Mike. I don't know. This is part of why, you know, doing this right after I watched it would be, would have been better. But, uh, there's the, the long nosed creature. Um, I think he, I think the jumping man is how he's sometimes referred to. I like to call him the magician because of the line in the Firewalk With Me poem, the magician longs to see. And when we first see this kind of long-nosed image, uh, it's it's uh, Mrs. Tremont's grandson, um, who I think is David Lynch's grandson in real life, or, or son or nephew or something like that. Um, and he's wearing a mask that doesn't allow him to see. So I, I normally call him the magician because of that. I don't know why. But um, it's just a really cool image of... of the magician walking down the stairs. And so I wonder if that's the same stairs. Uh, I think it might be. Okay. So I think next I want to talk about the things that I noticed watching this time as a direct result of how in-depth we've been we've been looking at every episode on Back in Style. The first of these observations comes from that scene we were talking about earlier with the giant or the fireman or seven question marks in a row or whatever you want to call him. He says, it is in our house now. And then points to this very old-timey phonograph while it has this scratching noise. Um, what this reminded me of was something that we've talked a lot about on Back in Style so far, especially this scene uh, in, in mid-season two when uh, Leland kills Maddie Palmer. There's this, or Maddie Ferguson, sorry. Uh, there's this amazing underscore to the, to the whole scene that just sets this rhythmic pacing to the scene. And uh, uh, not unlike... Another scene in The Return um, that I'm, I'll give a shout out to because it's one of my favorite scenes. Um, but it's, the, the, it's I, I believe it's a record, a record player where the record has reached the end of, uh, of, of the music, basically. Uh, and it's doing this clicking sound. It goes click, 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 click. And this just repeats through the entire scene. That's what I really thought about when I saw the old time record machine and the, heard the scratching noise. Um, the other scene that I think that's kind of like is when Richard Horn comes into, uh, uh, the house where Sylvia and Johnny Horn are living. And I'd totally forgotten that Johnny Horn was in the return, but he's in this really great scene where he has this teddy bear saying, hello, Johnny, how are you today? And that repeats through the whole scene. It's annoying. It's terrifying. It's rhythmic. It sets the tone for the whole, for that scene perfectly. Um, so, just a quick shout-out to that scene. Ah, I said I wasn't just going to talk about things that I like, but here I'm doing it again. Okay, whatever. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about, uh, when we were talking about Nido, uh, the, again, the, the blind woman, um, she, I, I think there's some, there may be something in here that's a reference to Fire Walk With Me. Uh, if you'll remember, Fire Walk With Me has a conversation between Donna and Laura. Very philosophical, very memorable. Laura says... Uh, do you think if you started falling through space, would you slow down eventually, or would you go faster and faster and catch fire eventually? I, I don't think, I mean, that's not verbatim, um, but that's the general, uh, that's, that's the gist of it. Um, now, when Nido goes on top of the box with Cooper, a box in space, and she pulls a lever on one of these Jeffrey's bells, is what I'm going to call them, uh, and she falls into space, I really think that could be a reference to that, um, that scene in Firewalk With Me. Again, Firewalk With Me is not very fresh in my mind, so I could be totally off on that. Uh, 
Another thing I noticed, uh, there is a, uh, there, there's a mug shot of Mr. C who's been arrested and it says he's six foot six. It says he's 78 inches. And I saw that and I guess I wasn't really paying attention to that number, uh, the first time, but I saw that and I thought, God, he's 78 inches. That's six foot six. That seems like so much taller than what Kyle McLaughlin is. And sure enough, I looked it up and Kyle McLaughlin is six foot. Now, we had just talked really, uh, uh, really recently in an episode about uh, how Josie died, and Josie's autopsy said that she was 65 pounds at the time of her death. Uh, and I think we're supposed to take this to mean that uh, Josie's soul has left her body, maybe, uh, is is entrapped in the, the, the drawer knob uh, at, at the Great Northern. It's a, a very funny scene. You can go back and listen to... Uh, uh, whatever episode of Back in Style that was, Condemned Woman, uh, and here are our thoughts on that scene. Um, but the implication seems to be that she had a, a physical symptom, which was extreme weight loss, uh, to her soul leaving her body. And I wonder if this is a similar kind of thing, that Mr. C is so tall, while the good Cooper isn't. Maybe the fact that he's a doppelganger? I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay, the next and final detail of this category is something that I've been waiting a really long time to talk about. In episode 11 of season 2 of Twin Peaks, there's, a, there's an interesting scene uh, with Ben Horn, and this is before he really goes off the deep end uh, with his whole, you know, Civil War reenactment uh, shenanigans, um, which, go hear our thoughts on that, too, uh, on Back in Style. Um, but before all that, he has an interesting scene where he says the line, he's, he has this whole monologue. And I've really, I've always zoned out for this, but this time it really caught my ear. And see if you can understand why, through the lens of the return. He says, do you think the furniture in this room is adequately arranged? I have been toying with the notion that if one could find the perfect arrangement of all objects in any particular space, it could create a resonance, the benefits of which to the individual dwelling in that space could be extensive, could be far-reaching. Would you help me with this desk? I believe Hank Jennings is in the room when he's talking to him. But this is this was so interesting to me this time around. Uh, if you don't remember what I'm talking about, Ben and his secretary Beverly uh, hear this this ringing noise, uh, a resonance, if you will, uh, in the Great Northern in in Ben's office that they can't find. They can't find the source of it, um, and no one else can. I think they bring in like uh, maintenance guys, and and they can't figure it out either. I feel like this is some sort of symbolic thing uh, for Ben Horn, that maybe he's, maybe he's found the balance he needs in his life. Maybe it's as something as simple as his room is adequately arranged, but I think it could be that maybe his life is back together. Maybe this is a sort of closure for Ben Horn. I mean, he has a very twisted backstory in the world of Twin Peaks, how, uh, you know, owning One-Eyed Jack's, uh, employing Laura there, he slept with Laura many times, according to, uh, according to season two, and he apparently loved her, and I think all of that, uh, maybe he's now put all of that stuff in his past, and he's finally moved on, and he is an, he is an honest man now, um, and so, yeah, I think that's what I like to believe, about this whole resonance thing, because he says, you know, if you could adequately uh, arrange everything in the room, it would create this resonance, and and you would get a lot of great benefits uh, in your whole life. I don't know. Uh, you know, again, if you have an, another interpretation of this, 
please uh, reach out to me in, in whatever way you choose and, you know, let me know because I'm, I'm interested in this theory. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the themes that I noticed during this experience. And this is pretty big for me. Um, it's easy to watch the return and just see a bunch of nonsense. Be like, wow, that was really cool, David Lynch, but it's a bunch of nonsense and it doesn't mean anything. There are themes and there are through lines uh, of, of this season. And, you know, some some more deep and profound than others, some just kind of fun. Um, but I, I'll get I'll, I'll get into all of those soon. Um but I just, I think it's really important that I watched it all as one movie rather than, uh, you know, 18 different episodes uh, week after week after week. Because when you watch it that way, you don't really get the full effect that there's anything continuous going on. You know, there's there's no sense of continuity. Um, but this, I mean, with this experience, I had so much continuity. I really hope that, that you can, uh, you know, watch it as I did as an 18-hour movie or, you know, even break it up. Do like three hours at a time or something. Um, but think of it as one unit. And, you know, you will probably find themes in here that that I, I, I haven't even thought about. You'll, you'll definitely pick up on, on more through lines than I can even say here. But um, I, have, I have basically three um, main observations. Uh, the first one is uh, a, a line that the fireman says kind of got me thinking. He says... It cannot all be said aloud. Now, shortly after that, Laura comes over, whispers something to Cooper, much like she did in the dream, um, which Cooper immediately forgot, uh, uh, you know, who she had said the killer is. And she's, you know, swept away by wind or something in the Black Lodge, and she screams, and we see a white horse, and it's a very scary moment. Uh, this seems to me like it's a punishment coming from the Black Lodge. Um... And this sort of brings me to an idea that I've been thinking about since basically the first time I watched uh, the season two premiere. The giant is giving very cryptic clues to Agent Cooper, and it really feels like he could just come out and say it. He could just come out and say what Cooper needs to hear, what Cooper needs to know, and why doesn't he? And that was always really frustrating. But I feel like there are some rules that the Black Lodge has about helping too much. They're not allowed to help too much. And in that scene, when Laura said that, Laura said something that she wasn't allowed to say. Um, and, you know, uh, there are always limitations on what you can say in the lodge. Um, you know, and, and even how it comes out, you know. Uh, Laura describes in her diary that when she had the dream she shared with Cooper, uh, in the red room, you know, with the little man, um, she says... Uh, I, I think she said that she tried to speak, but her words came out sort of backwards and, and I don't know, they came out slow and I forget, I forget how she describes it, slow and dreamy or something like that. Um, and it's just, you know, it, it, that creates a real sense of fear when you can't say what you want to say. It's like, I mean, we've all had those dreams where, you know, you, you want to run and you can't run or you want to hit something and you, you can't hit something. That's a common one for me, honestly. And in Twin Peaks, there seem to be rules about uh, what you can and can't say, what you can and can't do, uh, how you can say it, how you can do it. Um, so I think that's that's kind of an interesting idea. I, I'd like to think about that more as I, you know, go and, and maybe watch through. I, I mean, I'm sure I'll watch through seasons one and two again and Firewalk with me and, and even The Return again. So the next theme uh, I noticed is uh, it's about kids in dangerous situations. Uh you know, there, there are just so many 
uh, instances of either uh, poor parenting, failing uh, kind of the next generation of Twin Peaks, um, or just, you know, the kids are, are just in a dangerous place. You know, the danger in Twin Peaks is, is still very real. Um, and there are, there are so many examples. Just to kind of go uh, by the random list, the, the randomly ordered list that I cataloged in my notes, uh, there are some kids playing baseball who discover uh, Miriam's body while she's very bloody and sort of crawling and barely conscious uh, in the woods. Uh, there's a kid whose mother, we talked about this before, uh, the, the drugged out mother, as she's called in the credits, who keeps yelling 119, and this kid who has to feed himself, you know, saltines every day, um, and who... And he actually goes out uh, by Dougie's car and where there's a car bomb, and that's a whole situation. Um, he's in a lot of danger. Uh, oh, obviously the kid who gets run over by Richard Horn in one of... in Well, I'll say it, in the most horrifying uh, and graphic scene I've ever seen in TV... In, yeah, in, in television or a movie or anything. Uh, very effective scene, by the way. Um, there are Becky and Gersten, uh, Gersten Hayward... Um, who are, you know, we see them, they're both, they're both involved with this Steven guy, and they're both, you know, children of, uh, main characters, or, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, they're children of main characters, uh, Gersten Hayward, um, you know, Donna's younger sister, um, and Becky is the, the daughter of Bobby and Shelley, uh, you know, two very likable characters, uh, from the original run, who are now just in awful situations. Um, there's also a kid whose dad is assassinated by um, the mercenaries, Hutch and Chantal. Uh, by the way, I love those characters, and I, and I also love how they die. I love the way they go out. It's a, it's such a fun scene. Um, anyway, that, this is a kind of theme uh, that, that you notice. Oh, uh, it's not in my notes, but Richard Horn is also kind of an example of this. He's, he's sort of the next generation, um, Audrey's son, um, who, as we talked about earlier, was conceived in a, in a very, like, sinister and, and grimy way. Even though he's less of a victim and, and more of, like, a, a perpetrator in these scenarios, I mean, he's still, it, that's still kind of an example of, like, just the next, the next sort of generation of Twin Peaks just being so dark. Um, and, I mean, as well as the fact that, you know, Showtime is willing to let David Lynch go a lot darker than, than, uh, than ABC uh, <laughs> would have let him go back in the day. Um, but yes, that's, that's a, a scene of notice. That's also really accentuated by those roadhouse, uh, credit scenes that, that I talked a little bit about before. Uh, we have, I mean, they're mostly teenagers. They're mostly, uh, teenagers who are, who are drinking, uh, at the bar or smoking or something. Um, some put in, as I said, with the, uh, with, with the Jane Levy scene, getting put into very dangerous situations, uh, with, with very dangerous people. Um, as well, uh, there's the girl who has an itch. Uh, she has like a, this rash under her armpit. I don't know what her deal is. Um, I, I guess sickness is kind of a common theme. There, it, it seems like there's a sickness that's spread over the town. Uh, you've got the girl with the rash. You have a girl who's uh, throwing up, almost a zombie girl in in a car at one point that Bobby investigates. And yeah, it's just. There's a lot of really sad stuff happening in the town, and it just—it really just seems like the town has kind of gone to crap uh, over the years, and it's really sad to see um, that that kids are being put in harm's way, you know, now more than ever. So, okay, well, after that really depressing theme, uh, I, I wanted to talk about a funny one, uh, a funny little through line that I noticed through all these episodes. 
Um, when when Cooper is you know posing as Dougie Jones, uh, when he's again he he can't really speak full sentences. He mostly just repeats phrases. He has no idea what's going on, but is somehow kind of uh, led by by lodge spirits or, or something like that. Um, throughout the entire thing, he tries to touch the badges of law enforcement officers. Uh, and, you know, th- this is not only like a weird personality quirk of this Dougie character. Um, you know, it's, it's awkward and it's funny. But also, it's meaningful. You know, this is basically Cooper, um, the Agent Cooper that we all know and love, kind of trapped inside a, a, a very stupid being. Uh, he's he's really stupid in this, you know, in, in this iteration. Um, and the fact that he, the fact that he always tries to touch people's badges, it's, it's funny on one level because it's like, uh, oh, Dougie is like, ooh, shiny, let me touch stuff. But also, you know, it's Cooper. He knows that he's supposed to be law enforcement. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what he's supposed to be doing. Uh, and, and there's there's also even a brilliant touch where he's in the doctor's office and he puts and the doctor puts the stethoscope on Dougie's bare chest and he tries to touch that. And that's just such a brilliant detail. I, I love it. It's It's Cooper... That's Cooper really shining through in those moments, and and he doesn't maybe know that he is, but it's a it's a very complicated dynamic between Cooper and Dougie, uh, and that's I think something that gives us a lot of insight into it. Well, if you're still with me, uh, I thank you so much for sticking with me this long, and I if you're enjoying this, I would really encourage you to check out all of our other stuff on the channel, especially those other episodes of Back in Style. Uh, we have a lot of fun on that show, and we ha- we make some really good insights. Um, as well as, you know, uh, reach out to us on social media. Uh, we, we love to, you know, interact with people. So, um, yeah, please uh, do not hesitate to do that for any reason. Now, my last category of notes are things that I have, I just still have no idea about. I, I'm so lost. I really don't understand it. Um, and I'm just going to kind of go through those and talk a little bit about it. Uh, uh, first, I actually wanted to mention not really a thing I don't get. But something I want to try next time I watch this through, I want to toy with the possibility of alternate timelines in some scenes. What got me thinking about this is there's a scene where Andy and Lucy argue about uh, whether whether they want a beige chair or a red chair in their house. Uh, And it's a pretty mundane scene. But at the beginning, at the beginning of this, when we see the establishing exterior shot of the sheriff's station, we hear this this funky guitar sting that we only ever hear when we see the red room. And I don't know why it would be, but I feel like maybe that scene is not in the real world. And, and it seems like such a weird mundane thing for David Lynch not to set in the real world, but you never know. Maybe there's some deep hidden symbolism behind it. Um, and also just the layout of where their desks are it doesn't really make sense, I think, with how we see the sheriff station the rest of the time. Uh, another thing that sort of made me think about this is uh, uh, Candy, one of the sort of uh, Playboy Bunny um, uh, parodies um, employed by uh, the Mitchum brothers. Um, she, she, There's a scene where she's going after a fly and she hits uh, uh, Rodney Mitchum on the side of the head really hard and she feels terrible and she's like crying and it, it's a it's kind of a funny scene um and and you know just sad to see her you know kind of pathetic how how sort of groveling she is and then in every scene after that 
she seems really checked out and she seems like almost willfully like disobedient uh, to when she's given like orders. And I don't know, to me, that's just, that's so weird that in one scene, she's so like apologetic and like, I'm so sorry, I'll do anything you want. And then in another scene, she's like, you know, I, I, I don't really care. I don't really care what you're telling me to do. I'm just going to kind of stand here and zone off into space. So I don't know. That's, that's less of a concrete example, but I really feel like the guitar sting that the, the red room guitar sting with the establishing shot at the sheriff's station, I feel like that is supposed to tell us, like, this isn't real, even though the contents of the scene are very mundane. All right, now I'm going to go into talking about some other stuff. Uh, So, when Gordon, there's a moment where Gordon Cole opens the door to his hotel room, maybe, or apartment or something, and he sees Albert, uh, well, Albert is standing there, but at first he sees a shot of Laura from Firewalk With Me. And I have no idea what the significance of that is. Um, Similarly to that, I have no idea what's going on with the Monica Bellucci dream that David Lynch talks about, or that uh, Gordon Cole talks about, rather. Um, Although you could argue they're kind of the same character. I mean, they're both, they both like work in uh, Philadelphia and they're both called director. I don't know. We have like director Gordon Cole. So maybe it's a, it's, that's a little bit of a, a, a cheeky inside joke, you know, with, director David Lynch. But yeah, bottom line, I do not understand the Monica Bellucci dream. And I also don't understand the phrase, we live inside a dream. I don't understand why Cooper's, you know, face appears over that one scene and why it says very slowly, we live inside a dream. I don't get it. And I I think the reason I don't get it is that I want there to be a really deep explanation. I don't want this to just be like some kind of boring St. Elsewhere, uh, if you don't know, um, St. Elsewhere is, the reason I reference that is that I've actually never seen it. I believe it was like a medical drama, um, that like a pretty straightforward, like medical procedural, uh, that ran for years. And then at the end of it, for some godforsaken reason, they, they had, it's, I, I, I mean, I may be wrong about this. I may be totally wrong about this. Um, my recollection is that it like zooms out from the hospital or something like that and shows everything that happened in the show happened inside a snow globe and someone just sets the snow globe down. And it's, it's commonly, I mean, it's commonly referred to as just something that made the fans really angry and just didn't make any sense to do. And it was just really stupid, like low hanging fruit, you know? It also created a lot of really dumb issues. Like at one point it crossed over with, uh, with cheers, I think, and, and probably a lot of other shows too. And, uh, you know, and that applies that now cheers exist inside that tiny little snow globe too. Um, but, but bottom line, the reason why I bring that up is that I don't want to believe that twin peaks is like just a dream, that that's what we live inside a dream means. It has to mean something more. Um, to me, because otherwise I've wasted a whole bunch of time on this. You know, what what I'm thinking about is, uh, an, a, it's an episode of Community, a uh, very funny sitcom, one of, my, one of my favorite shows, probably, probably number two behind Twin Peaks, to be honest. Um, it's, it's very funny, very different from Twin Peaks, um, but there's an episode I'm remembering where uh, they, they try to shoot a commercial uh, for for uh, the Greendale, which is the community college that they all go to. Uh, and the, the dean of the college is the director. Uh, and he's making, like, completely outlandish choices. It's just, it's getting really weird. 
Um, and one of our main characters, Annie, is sort of like his second in command in this case. And and once he really starts like just completely going crazy, just off the wall decisions, he's she uh, Annie has like a, a kind of cutaway aside um, where she says, you know, uh, the the dean has to be a genius. He has to because otherwise it means that I've spent a bunch of time. Uh, you know, worshiping someone who's who's just crazy. He can't be just crazy. He has to be a genius because otherwise I've wasted a bunch of time on it. That's how I feel right now with We Live Inside the Dream. That's how I feel. I feel like if if this was David Lynch just saying like, yeah, all of Twin Peaks happened inside of Dream. None of it was really real. You were wrong to be invested in it. Because that's essentially, I feel like, what that says. Like, you were wrong to be invested in it. Like, you, you shouldn't have... You shouldn't have cared about it this much because it was just all happening in someone's dream. That's lazy. I don't like it. I don't want to think that that's the answer. Uh, if you have more insight into this, please let me know because I, I hate believing that that's just, that's the only answer. Other than that, the things I don't understand, I don't understand some of the stuff with Jeffries, uh, Philip Jeffries. I just, I'm not totally clear on the chronology um, of that whole thing. The Owl Cave Ring is something I really don't understand. It's something that was in uh, Dougie's possession, and I, I really don't understand what it does, uh, and just just the baseline of what it does, because it seems like uh, in Firewalk With Me, Laura put it on right before she died, and she was sent to the lodge, and now, like, sort of lives there now? Like, I, she kind of became a lodge spirit, I think, in some ways. Uh, but, you know, when, when Ray Monroe wears it, and, and Mr. C shoots him, his dead body is transported to the lodge and, and a pool of blood. But you know what? I mean, that's a totally different thing that happened to him than happened with Laura. Uh, when Mr. C dies wearing it, he's, you know, transported to the lodge and he and he's shown burning. His, like, head is on fire and he's sitting in a chair. So I just don't get what the Owl Cave ring does. I understand that it has something to do with, you know, transporting your form to the Black Lodge, uh, but I really don't, I, I, I don't know what, what the exact rules of it are. Okay, two more main things, and they're pretty big ones. Like I said before, I feel like I've pretty well figured out part eight. I think I mostly get it, um, but there are just a few things that I'm not so sure about. So, my first question is, why does Laura arrive on Earth so long after the orb. Laura's born in, uh, oh, I don't know, you know, it doesn't really matter, 70, pff, gosh, she's 17 when she died, I don't know, maybe like 73, I think, 1973, um, but her orb was sent down, you know, as a direct reaction to Bob, which was, who was supposedly born in 1945, so why does it take her so long uh, to, to actually arrive on Earth? I don't know. I might have an explanation. So, People are very quick to assume that the little girl in 1956 is Sarah Palmer. But I don't think that that's a given. Uh, it would match up, but I think it could also be anyone. And I actually think she looks quite a bit like Shelley. I don't know if that matches up with Shelley's mother, but maybe that makes sense. I don't know. I, I would need to think more about that theory before really committing to it. But the reason that I don't think it's Sarah is that she's penetrated by this thing that is so clearly a product of the nuclear test and of Judy and Bob. And Sarah's not a host to Bob, even though we know that she's possessed by something uh, in the present, 
like when she you know bites the 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 rude trucker's neck off um she's possessed by something clearly but i don't think she always was unless and and here's the thing unless the bug rabbit frog whatever the hell that weird little creature is unless that thing is actually laura and that was what was sent by uh dito and the fireman to impregnate sarah with a force of good because here's what i think if uh if that little girl is sarah and the bug thing that crawls inside her is an evil entity uh then she she has an evil entity inside her all along. And then two things happen. The first one is that during all of the time that Leland is assaulting Laura and when he kills Maddie, uh, when he drugs Sarah, that means that that is totally unnecessary. He doesn't have to do that. She has an evil force inside her. It should be working together with Leland's evil force. It makes no sense. Second of all, these two evil entities, Leland and Sarah, Bob and Judy gave birth to some magically good entity, Laura, who was sent to Earth like 30 years before she was actually born. That's why I don't think it makes sense. I think either um, either that, that frog bug thing is, is Laura or that, that little girl isn't Sarah. But I don't know. I could be wrong. Maybe I've gotten something very wrong then. I want you to tell me. Okay, the last thing. Audrey. I don't get anything about Audrey. Do not understand anything about what is going on with Audrey. Uh, I have some theories, but here's something really interesting that I, that I wanted to talk about. Uh, as I'm sure you remember, Audrey was finally shown really late in the show. I want to say episode 12 or 13. Really late. We had been waiting for her for so long. Um, you know, we knew that Sherilyn Fenn was going to be in the show. We were just wondering when. And I, I, I want to think about Audrey's late entrance on three different levels. One, the first level, is if this were a regular old serial TV show, like Twin Peaks in the 90s, or like any other show that basically, you know, writes an episode, shoots an episode, releases an episode. And, you know, maybe there are a few episodes ahead, like, you know, you're you're shooting episode six while you're releasing episode 10 or something like that. But but the the main idea behind it is that, you know, while you're releasing episodes, you're also shooting some episodes. Now, if the Audrey plotline had showed up really late in a season like that, that would have no significance at all. Because, I mean, if you think about, you know... The Evelyn Marsh plot in season two, was there any reason that that had to come at the point that it did in season two? No, other than the fact that that's, you know, the worst plot in Twin Peaks and that's the worst part of Twin Peaks, uh, you know, just, just chronologically. But uh, basically, the reason it was put there is that that's when the writers came up with the idea, that's when they wrote it, that's when they shot it, that's when they aired it. No bigger meaning, really, beyond that. Um, and, and you know, these, these serial TV shows, they just, they sort of just come up with ideas, and then and there, there's no really sense of long-term planning. Now, uh, uh, the second level that I want to think, on the, uh, think about this is a season of TV, like we get a lot these days, you know, Netflix and, and Hulu and all these streaming platforms, 
um, a lot of shows these days are produced uh, by recording, you know, write, you know, writing and shooting everything ahead of time and then releasing it all at the same time. Um, and so the second level that we're going to think about this is if Twin Peaks were a show where they did everything beforehand uh, and then released released each episode week after week, which is what they did. It feels a lot like David Lynch is just, he's being cheeky again. I feel like I've said cheeky so much on this show. I feel like that's mostly like a, a British or Australian thing. I'm not British or Australian. I'm from Pennsylvania. I don't know why I'm saying cheeky so much, but it seems like David Lynch is doing a cheeky thing where he's, he just wants to make people wait. He wants to make people wait to see Audrey because they know that she's going to be in it. He knows that they know that she's going to be in it. And, and he just wants to keep the suspense going and, you know, wait as long as he can. Okay. That's the second level. The third level is when this is, you know, this is galaxy brain mode. If you're familiar with that meme, this is, this is me in my basement watching this 18 hour movie. And this is I think where it all comes together for me. When you watch a normal movie, what happens at the end? A climax. What happens when you approach the end? You approach the climax. What kinds of details do you gain as you approach the climax? And and what kind of information? They get more and more important and more and more crucial to the plot, to the climax. And this is why I think uh, watching it as an 18-hour movie really made so much difference for me. Because at this level, at this, you know, level three, if that's what we're calling it, it's not just when the writers decided to have this idea. It's not just when David Lynch, you know, decided to stop being cheeky and put Audrey in the show. It makes sense. It's important that she has to be this late because she is important to the plot. And I want her to be important to, to the plot because I don't want it to just be some self-isolated uh, subplot that, you know, she's, I don't know, I've heard a lot of theories. Maybe she's in a mental institution. Maybe she's still in her coma. Maybe she's, you know, all these things. Maybe she's just in a dream. And again, there's that St. Elsewhere thing that I, I don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe that David Lynch is insane. He has to be a genius. Otherwise, I wasted all this time on it, you know. Um, but, but bottom line here is I think it's really important that Audrey is introduced so late because it, it, this shows, uh, you know, unequivocally that she has real importance to the plot. It wasn't just because uh, David Lynch wanted to make people wait for it. And so, although I don't have all the details about Audrey, I think that's important. Um, and it, a couple things to me tie her to all of this supernatural stuff, the log stuff. Uh, two details. One is that um, I, I believe Charlie says to her, you know, the, something about the story of the little girl who lived down the lane. Um, and that, uh, it seems like pretty, uh, a pretty innocuous line. And later the arm says something about the story of the little girl who lived down the lane. They share the same line. It cannot be a coincidence. That's gotta be important. I just don't know how it's important. Okay. The other thing is that when, uh, when, when Audrey is trying to get Charlie to put his coat on. She wants to go to the roadhouse to look for Billy. Uh, again, we heard about Billy in, in the Double R Diner when someone ran in and said, hey, has anyone seen Billy? Um, there's there's this Billy character, and she wants to go out to the roadhouse and, and look for him. And so she's trying and trying to get Charlie to go, and, you know, once he's finally ready to go, she doesn't seem like she wants to. It's this very weird... Um, you know, again, it's, it's like kind of the dream things that, that we talked about earlier where, you know, you want to run, but you can't just like 
something is holding you back. Something is holding her back from leaving. And But what's really interesting is that Charlie says the line, or, or something like this, I'm paraphrasing, are you, are we going to go to the roadhouse or are we just going to, are you just going to stand here all night on the threshold? And I know it's kind of a flimsy connection, connection to make with just one word. Uh, but I think the word threshold could unlock a lot of secrets about this. You know, Hawk's ideas that he talks about in season two about the dweller on the threshold being kind of your shadow self, your doppelganger, your, um, you know, the, the, the one that you have to confront with perfect courage, and if you confront it with imperfect courage, it'll utterly annihilate your soul. Yeah, the term, one of the terms he uses for that is the dweller on the threshold. And I think that's gotta have some connection. I mean, it's, yes, it's only one word, but it's not a very common word, and I feel like a word that's so important to the lore of Twin Peaks, and the fact that it's put in a plotline like Audrey's plotline, which I'm sure Lynch knew that people would be analyzing the hell out of, like me, um, I'm, I'm sure this wasn't a coincidence, I think, so I think the, the threshold has to be a connection, uh, and the story of the little girl who lived down the lane is just, there's no way that wasn't intentional, um, so, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know anything, uh, about Audrey, I know that I can see some connections, I just can't see how they're connected, uh, once again, if you have any answers to any of the questions uh, that I have posed tonight, please, uh, uh, you know, reach out to me. Don't don't hesitate. Um, if you just want to, you just want to talk about stuff. You want to answer some questions. You want to figure some stuff out together. You want to tell me why I'm dead wrong about something that I said tonight. You want to tell me that I was absolutely right and I really opened your eyes for something. You want to tell me that I have inspired you to, you know, uh, uh, to to also binge uh, season three as an 18-hour movie whatever, absolutely anything, please reach out to us at Twisted Mug Media on Instagram or Twitter, or twistedmugmedia at gmail.com is how you can email us. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Other than that, you know, good ratings, good reviews, good, uh, you know, subscribe to us wherever you can, and um, I, I, I hope to see you back here on the channel soon. Until next time, I'm Logan, and thanks for tuning in to Back in Style.